How are we doing, Remnant? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. I'm trying to get my computer to behave. It's not doing it yet. Oh, well, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you find this to be a place that you can understand what God's doing. Because many of us, I say this all the time, but, but we all sort of started out life. And we thought we had it all figured out. We thought we could do our own thing and that it would lead us to the place we want to go. And then along the way, we realized that we're not really very good at being God, that we really struggle at times. Thank you. And that the more we try to do the right thing, the more difficult it is. And eventually, most of us end up crashing our lives in some way. And we end up in a place like this looking for answers. We we come to a place like this because deep down inside, somehow we know that what we're missing is spiritual, that there's a part of us that isn't connected. And so we, we discover these things. And so we come here looking for information. We come here hoping that we'll gain knowledge. And what happens is we, we do, we learn a lot. But along the way, we fall in love. And we discover there's a very real God who wants to be a very real part of our lives. And it's crazy, and I didn't believe it until it happened. So if you're on your journey, welcome. I'm just glad you're here. Our job here is to try to just help you understand about this man, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago. You see, we don't follow a religion. We're not about following a bunch of rules. We believe that a very real man who was also a very real God on a Friday afternoon went to a very real cross and paid the price for our sins and died. And on the next Sunday morning, he woke up and resurrected and came back to life and offers us the opportunity to do the same. That's why we're here. We worship our Lord. Now, we're in the end of a Christmas series, and obviously I'm running late, which is about normal for me. So um, just imagine that we're sort of towards the end of Christmas, right? And you know that I love to study the Civil War. I talk about Civil War stuff all the time, and the Civil War impacted a lot of people. But that impact lasted for years following the Civil War. That's what people don't understand. The war didn't just end and everything got better immediately. The South had been totally decimated. The North was in absolute dire straits. They were trying to rebuild, but most of the infrastructure in the North and South was geared towards making weapons and towards war. And so they had to retool everything. They weren't real good at coming up with resources to care for people. Both the North and the South had felt the impact of the war long after the fighting had stopped in 1865. Thousands of people had died, leaving widows and children without support. Many had died of diseases. Many had died of war wounds. Some families were never reunited. Immediately after the war, immigrants in large numbers began flocking to New York City. They figured they might be able to get on a boat and go somewhere else, or, or maybe that's the place where there would be work, and many of them died of disease and poverty. Many had to abandon their children because they couldn't take care of them. Suicide rate among adults was very high. Between the war, the poverty, the disease, the large influx of immigrants, New York City was overwhelmed with social issues, particularly orphaned children. Tens of thousands of them. It seemed like they were everywhere. In the mid-1800s and early 1900s, New York City was home to almost a quarter million homeless children. The city was overrun with orphans and unwanted children. 
They tried to use old Civil War hospitals as orphanages, but they just didn't work. They failed financially. And then a minister had an idea. And I'm not sure it was a good one. But it did come from a minister. He started what he called Orphan Train. At the time, it was called Placing Out System. It utilized any passenger train going in any direction. They offered really low fares for children to get on the train. And they sent the train wherever it was going. Out of New York, that's all they cared about. Just get on the train and go. And then along the way at every stop, farmers and shopkeepers would come to the station, inspect the children, and decide if any would be a good match for their children. Like I said, I didn't think it was a great idea. Between 1854 and 1929, 250,000 orphans were sent away on orphan trains right here in the USA. I'm not real sure what I think about that. Many were immigrant children. Their families had migrated from Europe. Only one parent could afford to come, and then the parent died of disease or illness or, or had problems, and then the children were left alone. Their extended family was in Ireland or Germany or Italy. They had nowhere to go, so they got on the train. The train was an economic solution for New York City. They called it the Place Out Program. They relied on the kindness of strangers at train stops as an alternative to raising children in institutions. The outcomes were a mixed bag, as you can imagine. Orphan train reunions later, many recounted their experiences. Some were chosen into families, and it was the best moment of their life. Others were chosen into a new form of slavery, and it was the worst experience of their life. The idea of loading trains with children and sending them west seems barbaric to me. But it was the best solution they could come up with. I'm not sure we've come up with anything better in the last 150 years. It seems no country has ever solved the problem of helping children who are orphaned. Many foster care children are neglected, used, and abused. Orphanages never really worked out very well. Adoption hasn't solved the problem. As we speak today, there are 1.6 million children living on the streets in the United States. Others live in homes with dysfunctional parents and are essentially living as orphans, often taking care of their parents. I've been wondering why we're so ineffective at caring for orphan children. No society seems to have effectively dealt with this challenge. Epidemics, war, poverty continue to bring more and more orphan children, and we're not very good at managing them. If all the orphans in the world were to form their own country, they'd be the 10th largest country in the world. Most children who are orphaned are over the age of five. There are some famous orphans, Malcolm X, Marilyn Monroe, Ella Fitzgerald, Ingrid Bergman, Babe Ruth, Edgar Allan Poe, Johann Sebastian Bach, and Presidents Alexander Hamilton, Andrew Jackson, and Herbert Hoover. Those are the people that we hear about, but we don't like to think about the thousands of other people who are products of the foster care system, who are in prison, addicted to drugs, trafficked for sex, and trying to deal with serious psychiatric issues. Within four years of aging out of the foster system, over 60% have absolutely no income and no marketable skills. Only 50% of children who are in foster care will be employed by the age of 24. 
20% of them will become homeless after the age of 18. Fewer than 3% of children in foster care ever end up in a college, less than 1% ever graduate. 71% of young women who age out of the foster care system will be pregnant by the time they're 21. The risk of post-traumatic stress disorder, five times normal. Major depressive disorder, two times normal. Panic disorder, three times normal. Alcoholism, two times normal. Drug dependent, seven times normal. And bulimia, seven times normal. Every culture, every society throughout all of human history have failed to address those children without parents. Some have murdered them. Some have sacrificed them to the gods. Some have enslaved them. Some have adopted them. And some have cared for them. There's no doubt that children raised without loving and supportive parents really struggle. There's something deep within us that, that moves our hearts for orphans. Every one of us connects with orphans. It's bad enough that they've lost the love and support of their parents, but their children, they have so much to learn, so much to be taught, so much of life ahead of them. They're vulnerable, they're innocent, and they're often abused and manipulated by people who are wicked. When it comes to orphans, we all seem to get it. We can all identify with the children, even if we can't solve the problem. For some reason, it seems like there's a part of us that almost feels what they feel. It's easy for us to connect with their fear and their anxiety and their loneliness. There's something in our spirit that's kindred with them. You, you see, we connect with those emotions because we've all been orphaned. Once Adam and Eve sinned, the earth became a huge orphanage without its heavenly father. Children separated from their father being ravaged by the very sin that they were to be protected from. We're talking about orphans today because the Christmas story is about rescuing orphans. Spiritual children separated from their spiritual father. God's heart breaks for orphans. Throughout Scripture, he repetitively instructs the Jewish people to care for the fatherless, the widows, the poor, and the orphans. That's why Isaiah's words brought so much hope. Isaiah said he'll be called Everlasting Father. Hmm. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Isaiah wrote these words hundreds of years before Jesus was born. He speaks of a child born, a human, a son given, a spirit, and a new government will be a kingdom. And then he says things that this person will do, four unique things. His counsel will cause wonder and awe. He'll be called a wonderful counselor. He'll be a conquering warrior, but will do things only God can do. He'll be mighty God. He'll be the prince of peace, offering, prince, offering peace with God and the peace of God. And now we turn to the last one. He'll be called Everlasting Father. Notice a few things about these names. Wonderful counselor. He has a plan. Prince of Peace, his plan will result in our peace with God. Mighty God, he has the power to carry it out. 
An everlasting father, he'll see the plan through. Interesting that his son is given, but he'll be called father. Isaiah said that one of the ways we'd know this unique Messiah is that people would call this man everlasting father. Now you may be ready to check out right now. Perhaps the idea of father leaves you nauseous. And it's the last thing you really want to think about, your experience with your father becoming everlasting. In fact, from your perspective, being orphaned might have been better than what you really experienced with your father and your parents. The father wound is one of the most painful wounds we can experience. Many have a hard time seeing their heavenly father because they had so much pain caused by their earthly father. Many have been severely disappointed, hurt, and perhaps abused by the only father figure they ever knew. The concept of living with an everlasting father may be your definition of hell. You know what it means to be orphaned by your father, perhaps physically, emotionally, or both. My prayer for you today is that you would be able to set those feelings aside long enough to see how God defines a father. And if that's you, I'm really sorry your earthly father was left such a deep and painful wound. In fact, if you think about all the ways your earthly father disappointed and hurt at you, and then think about all you wished your father would have been, you're beginning to get a glimpse of God. We all have something within us, something very deep, longing for a loving father, a father who protects us, who provides for us, who teaches us, guides us, encourages us, and is our greatest cheerleader. So when God speaks through Isaiah, he spoke of a light coming into darkness, a child being born, a son given. One of the ways we'd recognize him is he says he'll be called an everlasting father. Now you got to admit, that sounds a bit lame compared to the other three, right? Wonderful counselor, he teaches, advises, leaves us in awe. Mighty God, all-powerful, does things only God can do. Stopping storms, raising the dead, healing the sick. But father, what's the big deal? Half Americans don't have a father in their home. Those that are there are often a huge disappointment. Why did I say he list this? Of all the things he could have said, he lists four things and everlasting father is one of them. Well, you see, we tend to think of biblical people being just like us, only they lived in the Middle East and they're not as smart as we are. We think their definitions are just like ours. We imagine that the term father is mentioned. They too have Homer Simpson or Tony Soprano or Frank Costanza. That's not the father that the Jewish scriptures talk about. So we have to be careful to understand what the term meant to them because scripture is first and foremost to be interpreted to its original audience. Father. The question we have to answer is, what did the people of Isaiah's day associate with the name Father? We get some hints from Scripture. Deuteronomy 24, 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It will be for the sojourner. 
the fatherless, the widow, and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It will be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. What he's saying is make sure you take care of the orphans. When you have extra in your field, when you press the wine press, don't forget the fatherless. Don't forget the orphans. They need you to care for them. Jewish men, you're responsible for the children of our nation. So they saw the father is the one who provides. We also see from scripture the term father was also applied to kings. Isaiah 22:20. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim and the son Hilkai, and I will clothe them with your robe and will bind the sash around them and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David and he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. The king was the father to the fatherless. He was to protect them. He was to provide for them. He was to guard them. He was also spiritually responsible for them. So regardless of what we think, when we hear the name father, they saw a father as spiritual leader, protector, guardian, and they saw it globally, not just me and my family, but me as a Jewish man and all the Jewish children. I'm responsible as a father for all the children. For nomadic times, a father's authority held the family group together, became a symbol of their security. He became the, the name by which they went. He was an absolute master who had the power of life and death over family members and ruled with unchallenged authority. That's what they saw in a father. However, he was also benevolent. He was kind, caring for them, instructing them, putting their needs and interests ahead of his own. Particularly in Jewish families, the father had the unchallenged leadership role, but it also came with significant responsibilities and significant responsibilities to God to carry out that role. So what was the role of a father in biblical times? Well, the first thing is he's a provider. As the head of the Hebrew household, it's his responsibility to maintain the family fortune and be the provider. He may work in the fields. He may bring in crops of flax and barley and wheat. He could work at a trade. He could be a weaver, a builder, a, a worker in copper or bronze. He might be a fisherman, but his responsibility was, I am to provide for my family. He was also a protector. Not only was he responsible for providing for the family, but he was expected to be their protector. He would guard them when they're vulnerable. He'd watch out for them. He'd make sure that every person in the family felt physically, emotionally, and spiritually safe. That was his job. He was also their priest. The father was responsible for the religious well-being of the family. It's his duty to take over the son's education from the mother at an early age and teach the children the tenets of the Hebrew law. He also explained all the facets of the law and all the history of the nation to his children. He was also the one who disciplined the family, driving home lessons to be taught, Though children were loved and valued, they were not pampered. He was also a teacher. Education took place within the synagogue, and shortly before the time of cross, a general elementary education was introduced. 
But it was imperative that the father took his children under his wing and continued to teach them once the formal teaching stopped. He was to teach his son a trade. He was to teach his son how to have a living. He was to teach his son how to provide for his family one day. Because a son without a trade either became starved or a thief, neither of which were allowed. He was a matchmaker. We forget about this, but it was his job to match up his children with their spouse to provide the offspring of the household. So when Isaiah said this child would be called a father, it meant a lot more than producing a child. While foreign to our concept of family, fathers, wives, and family role dynamics, the term father was very specific, carried a significant responsibility and huge expectations among their community. Even the relationship in which God presented himself to his people as their father would give strength and sacredness to the bond which connected earthly parents with their offspring. People were living in shaky times. Remember, we said this was a time of darkness. There was, there was fear and anxiety. There were difficult times on the horizon. They needed something they could cling to. And I just wonder if that's you today. Maybe you start out this year and it doesn't look the way you want it to look. Maybe things are troubling you. Maybe you're concerned about things and you need someone to cling to. People in shaky times want somebody they can depend on. They want a father figure who won't leave them or abandon them. So God promised both in his son. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how alone you feel, no matter how concerned you are, I'm sending you a protector, a provider. When Jesus grew up, he cared for people just like a father did. He nurtured sick people back to health like a father does. He prayed for people like a father does. He was there for people. He was strong and dependable like a father. You see, fathers, if, if they're to be anything in the lives of their children, they ought to do certain things and hold certain places in their lives. For instance, fathers ought to believe in their children. They ought to study the life of Jesus, and you'll find somebody who believed in people, who saw potential in people, even when they couldn't see potential themselves. Fathers ought to be firm but loving, which is exactly how Jesus handled people. Fathers ought to find a place out of which their children can identify their identity so they can say, I am a smith, and I come from a long line of smiths. That's who I am. I belong to this family clan. We know who we are. Jesus did that. For two millennium, his followers have been saying, I'm a Christian. I'm linked to the generation of Christians all the way back to Christ. In addition, fathers ought to be thinking about the future of their children. Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He was thinking about his kids' future. Jesus, as a father, is constantly shepherding. In fact, he has a father's heart. The shepherds nurture and protect and provide sacrifice and guard and support. Jesus had a father's heart. In fact, he said, I have an identical father's heart. If you see me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one. John 14, 6. Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, do you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you? Or don't you know me for such a long time? 
Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? Hebrew 1.13, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. We get a glimpse into Jesus' heart and His love for us. He's getting ready to leave Jerusalem. He knows that the time is near. He's moving towards the cross. He comes across the hill from Jericho to Jerusalem and he comes over the crest and the beautiful city of Jerusalem lays out in front of him. He's emotionally crushed, soon to be crucified. But his heart is breaking as a father's heart for his children. His children are about to reject him and he knows it. No matter how much he loves them, no matter how much he cares for them, no matter what he's willing to sacrifice for them, he knows that his children will reject him. You can imagine the pain he must have felt when that message was rejected. He came to the Jewish people. They needed a father, a father who loved them, but they rejected to him. Listen to his words. It's a father's heart speaking to his rebellious children. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you weren't willing. Behold, your house is broken. Jesus knew. He knew the sacrifice he was about to make. He knew he would be rejected. Can you imagine how painful it would be to build a safe home for orphans? To go to the orphans and tell them that there's a place for them and then they said, no, no, I'm good. I don't need to go. And instead, they kill the messenger. Why is the father wound so painful? Because deep within us, we all know what's missing. We've been orphaned from our spiritual father since birth. Because of sin, our spiritual deficit is at the core of the father wound. We long to be reconnected to our father. We long to be reconnected spiritually, to be cared for and taught Isaiah said that one of the ways we recognize the Messiah is he would be called Father. Why is that in the top four? Because every one of us is an orphan looking for their heavenly Father. When Adam and Eve sinned, we're all separated from our heavenly Father. We're all born as spiritual orphans. Vulnerable, unprotected, gullible, manipulated, abused, scared, afraid. Longing to be rescued, longing for someone to fill the void. See, our hearts break when we see orphans because it's one of our deepest longings to be connected to the Father. That's what Christmas is really about. This child that Isaiah described, the one born, the son given, was on a mission from the Father to rescue his orphans. Christmas is about bringing orphans, you and me, back into the Father's family where we belong. So Jesus came pleading with orphans to come home, to embrace the Father and His love for them, to allow Him to be their provider and their protector and their Lord. God knew that every person deep down was seeking their heavenly Father. They just didn't know it yet. He looks down from heaven and those that don't know Him and He sees them like the children in the streets of the cities where they're homeless. Jesus saw the huddled and harassed masses as orphans, separated from their heavenly father, innocent but being manipulated by the wicked one, 
vulnerable, afraid, and scared. He said he looked at people and he saw them as sheep who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he came. He came that Christmas morning to be a father to orphans. Everyone needs their heavenly father. That's why Isaiah told us we would call the Messiah father. But not just any father. Notice what he adds. Everlasting. God knew that we'd have another great fear. A fear that if we connected with our father, maybe something would happen and he'd leave. That fear of being abandoned once again. Many in our culture today suffer the father wound, not because they didn't have a father, but because their father was horrible and abused them. Maybe their relationship with their father was just fine. Maybe it was loving and wonderful, but they're hurt at the core because their father checked out, left their mom, left the family, and most importantly, left them. For others, their father died, left mom and the family, loved them desperately, but unfortunately, he's not here with them. Father wound is still very real, and they realize perhaps more than others what it means that this father would be everlasting because their earthly father was not. You see, God wanted us to know that this unique God-man would not only be called father, he'd be called everlasting father. And once we're reunited with our heavenly father, we will never be separated. We are reborn spiritually into the father's family. We'll never have to worry about being orphaned again. Our status as his child is everlasting through all of eternity. They will call Jesus everlasting father. Someone who became a father and always will be your father. Someone who became our protector, our provider, our spiritual leader, our teacher, and one who instills loving discipline. The term also implies that once he truly becomes a father, he's an everlasting one. The relationship can't change. He'll always be our father. He'll never leave us or forsake us. In a throwaway world, we don't experience too many things that are everlasting. Businesses and corporations don't last. Governments and kingdoms don't last. People don't last. No matter how much your parents love you, no matter how much a husband or wife cares for you, if you live long enough, there'll be a day when they leave. They will abandon you, if not by choice, then by death. Their lives will someday come to an end and there's nothing they can do about it. And we all know that that relationship is not everlasting. Things born of the flesh die. Things born of the spirit never die. In your flesh, your father is Satan. He'll destroy you and abandon you as an orphan. That's what the scriptures teach. But once you're born in the spirit, your old father, Satan, is dead to you and you have a new life with a new father who's everlasting. So two words would describe this Messiah, everlasting father. Someone who becomes our father. We have a relationship with him. We have eternal life. We know, we relate to and trust the father and his son, Jesus Christ. Once we allow him into our lives, he protects us and guards us and provides for us and leads us spiritually and disciplines us lovingly. Hebrews 13, 5, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, ever. And although we were once orphans, our father will never leave us. 
He shall be called Everlasting Father, Emmanuel, God with us. And His last words to us from the Mount of Olives, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. At the end of Revelation, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's why Jesus' eternity matters. That's why we care that Jesus will never change, never cease to exist, because it means that all of the good things He is to us now, He will always be to us. He'll always be our provider. He'll always be our protector. And He will always be our Savior. He'll always be our refuge. He'll be our strength. His love for us will never cease, either in this world or the next. In Him, we will have eternal joy and hope and glory and pleasure. In Christ, we will be eternally blessed and secure. He keeps His promises to us even when other people don't. So no matter what you're going through, whether you're suffering disappointment, whether pain, sorrow, confusion, anger, no matter how people may treat us, whether we've seen our highest dreams realized or our greatest hopes in the world dashed to pieces, no matter what life brings us, we can have peace and contentment because we know that everything in this world's temporary. It'll soon pass away, but our life with Christ is forever. He'll never die. He'll never leave us. His goodness, his compassion, his kindness, it will never end. We are his people and he is our savior now and forever. Hebrews 1.10 and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's why the Christmas story is important. This child will be like none other wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, and now we understand he's also going to be called our everlasting father. God desperately seeks to provide and protect orphans. Through Scripture, He directs and demands that we care for those who've been abandoned. That's why He sent His Son to save us. Christmas is an orphan rescue mission. Our spiritual Father is sending His Son as a gift to rescue orphaned sinners who've been separated from their Father. During the Christmas season, we tend to focus on the miracle of Christ's birth, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, stable and it's right for us to do that. But we also need to remember why he came. Because people born in the flesh need to be saved from themselves, and orphans need an everlasting father. Not just a good moral example. Not just a wise teacher, not even a religious leader. We needed a savior who will be called our everlasting father. My heart breaks for orphans all over the world. I can't imagine how desperately they want to have someone love them, protect them, teach them, and provide for them. And as I think about them, as I begin to watch them, I begin to understand Christmas, and I begin to see the way God sees us. Let's go back for, for one second and look very carefully at what Isaiah actually said. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We walk through darkness. And at some point in that darkness, we see a great light. But then Isaiah tells, some just don't walk in darkness. They dwell not in darkness, but they dwell in deep, deep darkness. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Do you know if you go into deep darkness for very long, you'll go absolutely crazy? Your mind will just start hallucinating. You'll start going psychotic. Sometimes we walk through darkness and we see a great light, but at other times, God requires that we dwell in the darkness for a while. We spend time there. But then he says something happens in the deep darkness. It's not just that we see the light. Something much deeper happens when you stay in deep darkness for a while. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelt in the land of deep darkness. On them has light shone. That's interesting. You would think in deep darkness, the light would shine on your darkness. It doesn't. It shines on you. What he's saying is when you get in deep darkness and the love and the light of Jesus begins to shine, you feel it. Because he's not about overcoming darkness, he's about overcoming you. It's one thing to see the light of Jesus, it's quite another to experience it. There's something about the deepest, darkest times in our lives when we don't just see God's light, we feel the warmth of his love through his light and it's on us. Our circumstances may not change. It may be dark. It may be very dark. But somehow in the midst of that darkness, we feel his light and it's warm and it's soothing and it's embracing and it envelops us and it wraps us in his love and it sustains us through the darkness. The light doesn't shine on the darkness. The light shines on you and me so that we can move forward through the pain or the grief or the loss. It's in those deepest, dark moments of our lives when we finally understand that despite the horrors we've experienced, our future is safe in the presence of the everlasting arms of our Father. Many will face this year deep darkness. And many of us may be in a time when God asks us to stay there for a while. But the reason a child was born and a son was given is that no matter how deep the darkness gets, all orphans can feel the light that is their everlasting father right there with them in the midst of the darkness. I started this series by explaining that Christmas is set in the midst of dark times. We're all in dark times. We're either coming out of them or headed towards them. I want to close today by having us spend time in the presence of our loving Father. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. Jesus told us to remember him in this way. On the night before he died, he said, this wine is my blood poured out for you. And he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The communion tables will be open in a minute. And you can come and you can take communion at the altar or in your seat. Whenever you're ready, take it yourself. But first, I want us to do something. I want us to spend some time thinking about your everlasting Father. Meditate in prayer for a moment about what it means that you're no longer spiritually orphaned. You've not been left behind. You've not been abandoned. Once you were in great darkness, but now a great light shines on you. You feel the warmth of that light as you know the embrace.
being lovingly and securely wrapped in the arms of the Father, knowing that nothing can touch you unless it gets through him first. You have an everlasting father, a protector, a priest, a guardian. You'll never again be abandoned. You'll never be left behind. You'll never be neglected. You can begin this year knowing, safe, secure, and that you're deeply loved by your father no matter what happens on this earth. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is always with us, even until the end of the time. He's our wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's the Prince of Peace. And yes, he's your everlasting father. He's Messiah. He's your savior. The communion tables are open. Come when you're ready. Do this in remembrance of him.
God, we thank you for being our everlasting Father, for being our Savior and our Lord and our protector and our garter, for teaching us all things, for being all things. God, there's not a thing we can name that you're not above, including whatever obstacles in our way, whatever's in our path. You're above it all. So God, we thank you that you are wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And we thank you most of all, God, that you're that for all of eternity. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for these incredible words through the prophet Isaiah. Most of all, thank you for the Messiah, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.